United Planners, an RIA and broker-dealer structured as a limited partnership, providing partners and associates an unfettered program to conduct fee-based and commission business for over 30 years. Advisors are offered the flexibility of being independent with a broad choice of custodians under the firm RIA or their own independent RIA. Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast and thanks so much for joining me. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and wellness and today's guest knows a thing or two about that. Uh, His name is Matthew Grishman. He's a principal and wealth advisor at Gebhardt Group in Roseville, California. He's also the author of Financial Sobriety, Rebuilding Your Relationship with Money One Step at a Time. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Diana. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you could be on. Um, Matthew began his career in financial services in 1995 with A.G. Edwards & Sons and became fully licensed as a broker in 1996. He spent 17 years as a national spokesperson for large mutual fund and insurance companies, including Lord Abbott, Putnam, and MetLife. In 2014, Matthew joined Gebhardt Group, an independent RIA, and he became uh, owner of the firm in 2015. Um, After an out-of-control money addiction cost him nearly everything, Matthew hit rock bottom and was faced with a critical decision, make massive changes to how he was living his life or die broke and alone, and Matthew chose change. Financial sobriety is the path and curriculum Matthew and uh, his partner, Jim Gebhardt, developed to help others become more intentional about um, with three complex and interconnected relationships, money, people, and self. Uh, We're going to hear from Matthew himself about that journey to hitting rock bottom and you know how he bounced back from that and just completely changed his life, turned it around. But first, Matthew, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into financial services and why. Sure. With that fantastic introduction, I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. I, I came into this business for one reason, and that was money. You know, when, it, when, when, I, was, when I was young, when I was 16 years old, I was just starting 10th grade. And I was the new kid in school again. And I'll never forget that first day that I was the new kid. First period, it was band class. I walked into school that day and I sat down and and there she was kind of sitting across from me in the band room, this most beautiful girl I had ever seen. Mm. And in my mind, there was absolutely no way I was going to be good enough for this most beautiful girl. I mean, it was love at first sight for me, but in my head, I was just another loser that was never going to be good enough for her. But I had this idea. I knew that I had a shot if I were able to go out and make a ton of money and give this girl anything in life she could have ever wanted, then Mm. perhaps I'd be her hero. 
And if I were her hero, then I could look in the mirror and actually feel good about myself because there's no yeah. way I'd believe that on my own. And, and so when the time came, and, and let, me be, <laughs> let me be clear, because this girl who happens to be my wife today of 25 years, this was nothing she ever asked for. It was mm-hmm. all in my own head. And, and where it led me to was, was getting out of college and, and looking for that one place where I could go make the most amount of money I possibly could. And that was the money business. That was Wall Street. That was that first firm at A.G. Edwards. That's why I did it. Yeah. And um, you also, you know, sort of got a glimpse of that life, right? When you you met a wholesaler or something or sort of saw, you know, like what he was wearing and what you might be able to buy or. Yeah, it was, I'll, I'll tell you, and, and I think anybody in the business who started as a stockbroker back in the 90s can can relate you know, it, it's hard starting as a stockbroker. And, and as much as I dreamed of money coming quickly, it didn't. You know, 300 cold calls a day and, and trying to grind it out as a stockbroker wasn't really bringing the kind of financial success I, I was dreaming of. And then one day, this, this young wholesaler from a mutual fund company walked in our office. And, and I barely could spell mutual fund back then, let alone have an intelligent conversation about them. But man, this this guy looked good. Just the the pinstripe suit and the shiny wingtips, and and just the way he spoke to us in front of the room with this confidence. I mean, this just this guy just reeked of success and and money and and just all the things that I was coveting at that point. And it just it became obvious to me that I had to at least try to go in that direction. I mean, if this young guy could do it, well, maybe I could too. And so I, I walked up to him. His name was Paul. He, he worked for a mutual fund company based out of New York, my, my first um, uh, mutual fund wholesaling employer, Lord Abbott. And within a couple of days, I had an interview with them and got hired and worked on their sales desk. And I was kind of promised this, hey, if you work for us for a few years, you're going to get the opportunity like Paul did to get out in the field, to call on financial advisors, to have that dream territory uh, where where your income possibility was limitless. Lucky mm-hmm. for me, I put my nose down. I had a great work ethic growing up. Thank you to my mom and dad for instilling that in me. And in six months after becoming an internal wholesaler at Lord Abbott, they promoted me to an external wholesaler and shipped me clear across the country to my own territory in the Pacific Northwest. And we were off to the races. Yeah. So tell me about how your lifestyle tra- uh, started to change as you made more money. That's a great question. Something, you know, Amy and I think back to the times when I was a starving broker at AG Edwards and even the early days on the sales desk at Lord Abbott. And we lived in New York City. And I remember all we used to talk about was if we could just make a little bit more money, maybe we could afford fill in the blank. Maybe we could afford going out to dinner one night a week. Maybe we could afford a Broadway show one day. And mm-hmm. what happened with wholesaling was my income didn't go up just a little bit. I mean, I was making $25,000 a year on a sales desk in 1997. And my first year out in the field as an external wholesaler, my income went from 25000 bucks a year to north of 150000 bucks a year. And it just wow. continued to climb. I mean, it was it was like a rocket ship. It's it's not the normal, I guess, the normal way that that income growth happens for folks. But 
man, the way it affected me was profound because now with all of this new cash flow, Amy and I could buy that second car. We could build that house of our dreams. We could go out to dinner as we wanted. We could travel as we wanted. And of course, with, with now owning a house, well, now I've got to fill that house with a bunch of furniture and a bunch of stuff. And of mm. course, the house was way too big for me to handle, so I had to hire people to help me maintain that house, like mowing the lawn and cleaning the house. And it just, as, as I was making more money, my lifestyle continued to grow. It was almost like as my income grew, so did my lifestyle. And, and for the first time in my life, now as I look back on it, I was experiencing a phenomenon called lifestyle inflation, where mm. you know I still think to this day is, is probably one of the greatest financial risks not talked about enough in our industry. I mean, we talk so much about market risk and inflation risk and all these you know, lovely terms that you know, we're, we're taught as academics in this business, but from a behavioral standpoint, the real risk to my financial security was this concept of lifestyle inflation where as I made more, I just, I spent more. My lifestyle could get bigger. And to the, to the top of my wholesaling income, where it was north of a half a million dollars a year, and, and at a time, looking back on where I was making $25,000 a year, and although I had a bunch of really cool stuff in my life, and I had some cool experiences, I really had nothing else to show for it from a standpoint of financial security and true wealth in my life. We really had made no progress from that standpoint, other than a house and a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I hear you on the, you know, when you buy a house, having all these other expenses come with it. How did your spending get out of control? You know, I, I don't know at what point in my life, if I, if I think back at when it really started, but I think how it got out of control as, as I look back on it was... And, and I guess the best way to describe it was, now looking back, I had this huge hole inside of me, this almost like a hole in my soul. And I was filling it with stuff. I was filling it by chasing money. And it seems like there, you know, there were some things that happened in childhood that just affected my self-esteem that I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit more here today. But I never felt enough. I, I always felt less than. I always felt different. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that moving around a lot as a kid probably contributed that to a little bit. Although, you know, now I look on that time in my life and, and the moving around a lot and being that new kid as something that happened for me, not something that happened to me. Because I do believe today I'm much more resilient as a result of that. But at the time, I was much more of a victim of those circumstances. And, and I think it left this, this kind of hole inside of me that I was trying to fill up with whatever I could get my hands on. And what Lord Abbott and, and some of my wholesaling employers back then had given me was this incredible financial uh, reward for my hard work of, of a huge income. And, and buying stuff and experiencing stuff, it just it, it almost became like an addiction. I, I, I started developing this, this almost train wreck of a relationship with money because I was treating it like it grew on a tree in my backyard and it was always going to be there for me. And I never really thought about how to be responsible with it, how to use some of it for a later date. E even though that was the, the business that I was in, 
That was the industry that we're in. It's all we ever talk about in the industry. It was, it was baffling how I could talk out of one side of my mouth about being responsible for money, but my own behavior was the exact opposite. And just yeah. as time continued and time went on, the behavior just got more egregious. It just got bigger. And the, the, the types of things I was doing with money just got crazier until it all kind of came to a head in, in 2005. And for the first time in my life, my financial life kind of came crumbling down around me. Yeah. Tell me about that, it, what happened in 2005 and, and um, you know, when you realized that you needed to change your relationship with money. Yeah. To, you know, 2005 was quite a year because from a, from a professional standpoint, as a wholesaler, I mean, I, I was still a young guy. I was 33 years old and I was at the absolute top of the food chain in, in the wholesaling world. I was one of the top producers in, in my firm. I was at MetLife at the time. Uh, wholesaling on the annuity side of our business, and we were just crushing it, having the time of our life. MetLife had 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 me at that point uh, go beyond wholesaling to where now I was representing the firm at a lot of big national meetings, where where I was the speaker um, at some of the biggest you know independent broker dealer national sales meetings, and you know representing one of the most uh, widely known brands in the world uh, from a financial perspective. And so I was feeling really good from a from a professional standpoint. But again, I was, I was ignoring that relationship that I had with money. And it was July of 2005. I was waiting for a town car to come pick me up at my house to take me to the airport. I was on my way down to San Diego to be the speaker for MetLife at this LPL National Sales Conference in San Diego. Mm-hmm. My wife was sitting in the bedroom, and, and she called into me, and she said, uh, Hey, Matthew, did you remember to get cash out for me? The boys and I are going to go to Sunsplash, which is a little water park uh, here locally that back in the day didn't take credit cards. So we needed to get cash out for her to go there. And, you know, I was just, I'm standing in the mirror looking at myself in my new Hickey Freeman suit, and I've got the two-tone Rolex on my wrist, and I'm just, I'm really into me at this point. And I, I didn't have the time to go take cash out for Amy and the boys. So I looked at her and I said, hey, let's just go online. You're going to have to stop and get cash. Let me go online and look at which bank account you can get some cash from. Well, this was pre-smartphone days, so I load up my laptop, Mm -hmm. and I'm standing there in my bathroom. And to my surprise, I look at my bank account, and at first, it had to be a mistake. Mm. The the bank account was showing that I was $210 overdrawn on my checking Mm. account with nothing in my savings account. Mm. Now, what was hard to believe that this could have been true was I had just gotten a direct deposit a week earlier. And back Mm. in the day, we were paid once a month. Okay. So it had to be a bank mistake. So I looked at Amy, honey, well, look, we'll take a credit card cash advance until the bank can figure this out. I've got to get to San Diego. Well, which credit card should I use? At Mm. the time, we had three Visa cards. Mm-hmm. So I went online, I looked at each and every one of the visas. Every single one of them was maxed out. Mm. So here I was maxed out on my three credit cards. I was overdrawn on my bank account. I didn't have any cash flow coming for another month. And all of a sudden, it kind of started to hit me. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. Am, am I broke? Mm. A- am I broken? 
And and just the the feelings that started rushing up from my gut into my throat and into my head, I started getting really dizzy. And, and next thing you know, I'm on the floor in my bathroom because I, I was in a full-blown panic about oh I, I, how, how am I going to get to San Diego? I mean, how, how mm-hmm. am I going to pay the, the town car guy that's going to pick me up or, or check into my hotel? I mean, here, here I was on the outside, this kind of corporate-looking rock star who most of my colleagues would tell you looked like he had his you-know-what together. Yeah. But on the inside, I was, I was destroyed. I was, I was broke. I was broken. All, all I could do at that point was crawl off the floor and get in my car and go drive and try to think of a solution. Mm. The, one of the hardest phone calls I ever had to make in my life was to my boss that day to make up a reason as to why I couldn't be in San Diego for him to speak. Mm. And I hated lying to him, but I didn't have a choice. I couldn't tell the truth as to why I was in the position that I was in because my, yeah. my ego told me I'd be ruined if I told anybody. So I got in my car and I just started driving like a bat out of hell. I'm, I'm to this day blown away that I didn't kill anybody with the way I was driving. And I hit this two-lane highway near my home going north, mm-hmm. just cursing myself out, looking at myself in the mirror. You loser. I can't believe what you did to Amy and the boys. Mm. And every time I'd look up in my rearview mirror, Diana, all I could see looking back at me was my $4 million company paid life insurance policy. Mm. And for a minute, this idea came into my head that Amy and the boys would be a lot better off with that than they would be with me. And then I saw it coming. About a mile up the road, a big semi was coming right at me. And I said to myself, all I got to do is turn this wheel a little bit to the left and this all goes away. Mm. Now, I'm super grateful that my hands froze on the steering wheel that day. Yeah. Because that, that, no. yeah, that, that wasn't supposed to be the end for me. It's the, the first and, and thankfully only time in my life I've ever contemplated taking it. And it was a wake-up call. It's, it scared the, the you-know-what out of me. And I'm also grateful for an advisor, a financial advisor, that I had just recently met who was a virtual stranger to me. But there was something about this guy, right? As a wholesaler, I'd, I had met with thousands of financial advisors in my life. And most every financial advisor I'd ever met is a good person, an honest person, an ethical person. Our industry is filled with great people. I think sometimes we, we as an industry get a bad rap in the media, but really the people who, who do what we do for a living are mostly wonderful people. This mm-hmm. guy was different. He, he was unique, and, and I felt it the first time I met him. And there, there was something about him that it felt like, well, maybe he could help me. I mean, I, I can't tell anybody about this, but there's something about this stranger that feels safe if I go talk to him, and maybe he can help me figure out what's wrong. Mm. And so I put on the bravest hat I could, and I, I picked up the phone, and I called this man up. His name is Jim Gebhardt. He happens to be my business partner today, but he, he was that person that I picked up the phone and called and I got in my car. I had no purchasing power. I had a half a tank of gas. I had no idea how I'd be able to fill up my gas tank to get back that day, but I knew I had to go see him and I drove the 75 miles to go see him. Mm. He did some things and said some things that I had never experienced with another man before. I sat down with him and I shared with him the story that I just shared with you. 
and mm-hmm. immediately covered up. And I, I kind of waited for what I was expecting, which was, this is what you should have done. This is what you could have done. But he didn't take that approach. You know, why, why didn't you save some of this money? You've made so much money. That, that's what I expected. And it's not what he did. He looked at me after hearing my story and he just paused. And mm-hmm. I felt that he felt what I was feeling. And what he said to me next just nailed it. Man, that had to be hard to live that way. Hmm. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. That had to be hard. But you know what? I think you were pretty close. Well, what do you mean? Hmm. Well, it sounds like to me, Matthew, you've got these three pretty complicated relationships in your life. You've got this complicated relationship with money. You've got this really complicated relationship with your people. And man, you've got a a complicated relationship with yourself. Mm. I mean, it sounds like you chased money to take care of your people, a la get the girl, so that you'd actually feel good about yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty that's much- exactly it. Yeah. That's it. And, and he said to me, well, what would happen if we simply reversed the engineering of that? What, what if we simply reversed the sequence of that? Because I think you're onto something here and I think you're close. You just maybe could go in a different direction with this and that could be the solution to having a little bit of a healthier relationship in each of these places of life. I mean, imagine if you started with that relationship with yourself and mm-hmm. somehow learned how to have some unconditional acceptance of who you are, that you're a flawed, imperfect person that's made mistakes in life. Now, I didn't really know how I would go about doing that, but I believed it was possible. I mean, this this man made me believe that it was possible. Mm-hmm. And if I could actually have that for myself, Diana, then could I maybe give my people what it is they really want from me, which is really mm-hmm. that same unconditional acceptance. Absolutely. That same, yeah. right, that same love. Mm-hmm. And if I were able to do that for myself and for my people, would that maybe simplify my relationship with money? And so, so Jim just kind of painted this picture for me that I, it was like, wow, how, how have I not seen that before? It was like he was a blind spotter that pointed something out that was so close to me, I couldn't even see it. But because of his empathy and his compassion and his willingness to not try to fix me, not try to scold me or tell me what I could have done, just listening and holding space, it it allowed some kind of trust to build very, very quickly where I could start to believe that a different direction was possible, even though I didn't know how. Mm. It was it was unbelievable. And and that that was the the first major turning point in my life and in July of 2005. And you know, who would have thought a whole bunch of years later I'd be standing shoulder to shoulder with that guy, you know, doing for others what he did for me. Uh, it's just it's amazing. I'm a little speechless after, you know, hearing all the things that he said to you because I just think that, you know, I think that his insights could really apply to a lot of us because a lot of us are, you know, worried about what others think about us and and want to, you know, put on this, um, you know, persona and have all the the right stuff and, um, you know, look a certain way or, or whatever. And, you know, we want to be loved by others, but, you know, 
we really need to love ourselves first and, and focus on that and, and, you know, good things will follow, right? Absolutely. So I know, um, you know, what happened in the years following, um, I know you sort of reached a second critical bottom. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, I mean, things things obviously got a lot better. I mean, one, one of the things that I had going for me in 2005 was the fact that I still had really good income. So by starting to learn how to do some very basic things, my, my life started to improve dramatically. One of the first things that, that Jim had helped me with was he introduced me to a life coach who also happened to have been named Jim, who made this suggestion about how to start rebuilding that relationship with self. And it really started with a very simple action because in my head, it was hard for me to think that I could love myself, that I could accept myself. I mean, it was this crazy thinking in my head that kind of got me in trouble to begin with. So I couldn't rely on what I knew and how I thought to get me out of these challenges. And, and I recognized that in 2005. So I became very open to trying some very new, very odd things that didn't feel natural to me or didn't come natural to me. And, and one of the things that Jim Kelly, this life coach, had suggested I do is to take my wife's one color lipstick that she never uses and use it to write three certain statements on my bathroom mirror that I would read to myself every day, even though I didn't believe them. And the, the three statements were very simple. I'm proud of you. I love you. I believe in you. Mm. And I'll, I'll tell you, Diana, I, this, is, this is how willing and desperate I was. That's not natural for me to look myself in the eyes in the mirror and say something like, I love you. I'm, yeah. I believe in you, right? It just, that, that wasn't natural <laughs> to me. I kicked my own butt. But this is how willing and desperate I was. I did it. And the first day I actually did it, I, I almost wish this was a visual podcast so you could see my face here. But basically, my face was all scrunched up. And it's like, I'm proud of you. I love you. I believe in you. I just, <laughs> I did it. Whew, I'm done, right? Yeah. What happened with a little bit of time was after about a month or so of doing that, I found myself finding some humor in it. Like, I'd, mm. I'd laugh at myself about it. And it was just amazing how over time, this action that I was taking every day started to get me to believe what I was reading. I mean, it was just, it was really cool to, to experience how that felt, but it took some time in doing it. Now, with time, I was able to recover financially. I was able to have a healthier relationship with money and learn how to have a healthier relationship with money. I learned that I was going to be my most important investment I could ever make. So investing in myself and putting money aside for investing in me, right? The, the person who's responsible for creating all my wealth is me. So mm. it would make sense that I would invest in me. And, and I developed some wonderful, wonderful habits as it relates to this relationship with money. So much so that in 2011, I was able to walk away from kind of the corporate side of our industry and go into independent practice with Jim as kind of a mentor helping me get set up. And just a few years later, having him bring me into the practice and making me an owner in the practice. Well, I started getting a little overconfident. I mean, in mm. 2011, I had a whole bunch of money saved. I had seven figures saved. And, you know, after visiting with financial advisors for years, I figured I knew how this business worked and this would be easy, man. 
this would be easy going from wholesaling to being a retail financial advisor. Yeah, so sure. guess what? Guess what I did? I kept my lifestyle the same. I didn't mm -hmm. change. We kept mm -hmm. living like I was on a, a pretty significant paycheck, but only now I didn't have any cash flow coming in and I was starting to build a practice from scratch as an independent RIA. By 2014, 20, 2015, I was pretty much broke again. I was out of mm -hmm. money and I was still clinging to this hope. It was almost like all of those good habits that I had learned, I just got so overconfident with myself that I forgot about them. You know, I've, I've, I've got a really fast forgetter. That's, that's part of what's, what's broken within my brain is that I can forget what's good for me very, very quickly. And soon after, here I am now almost completely out of money again. My practice is getting to a point where it can just now sustain our basic living expenses, but man, was life uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really started reaching for the bottle. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't have money anymore to fill this hole in my soul that was starting to grow again. So now that I didn't have money to do that with, I couldn't go out and buy a third Rolex watch. I had to find something else. Yeah. And the most convenient thing that I could find was in a cabinet above my refrigerator to the left. And it was pretty much any bottle marked 80 proof or more. Yeah. And I started drinking to fill that hole in my soul. And the drinking got bad. It got really bad. Yeah, I mean, what uh, at what point did you, you know, sort of realize you needed to, you know, get help with the drink? People around me, I mean, I remember the first person to say something to me was was our head of operations here in my office. I used to, uh, I used to, we used to keep some beers in the fridge, you know, here in the office for the end of the day when we were done with our client meetings. You know, we would all kind of sit back and debrief on the day and have a beer. And what was starting to happen was, was as my client meetings were getting earlier and earlier, meaning they were getting done earlier and earlier, my drinking was starting earlier and earlier in the day. So I, ne I never mm -hmm. drank. Uh, I was never one of those drinkers who got up in the morning and started drinking. I didn't drink with clients in the office. It was always after my work day. But I would make my schedule so that my work day was getting done sooner and sooner. And it was Allison who, who said to me, look, we, we got to get the booze out of the office um, you, you're, you're getting a little crazy here. You, you might want to think about toning this down a little bit. And, and I was getting these messages from friends. I, I had a friend that I coached little league with who told me I needed to stop coaching the little league team and that he needed to take over because my drinking was too much. You know, I, I had all these people telling me these things. I, I had my wife and my children telling me, gosh, you're, you're, you're sure drinking a lot, dad. You, you, you really need to slow things down. Um, but I wasn't hearing them. I, I was in denial. No, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. You know, I, I, I got this under control, um, but I didn't. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those lucky ones, Diana, because I didn't have to lose everything to finally realize that, that drinking couldn't be part of my life anymore. But I also yeah. know that if I keep drinking, I'm going down a path where I could wind up in prison. I could wind mm -hmm. up dead. I could wind up losing everything. Um, it, it was, it was one, it was a really bad day. It was in 2017 and early 2017, uh, January 20th to be exact, where I started drinking at lunchtime mm. and it continued throughout the entire day. And I made a really bad decision to drive home that day. 
Mm. Um, I don't remember getting home. Uh, thankfully, I didn't hurt anyone. Somehow, I didn't get caught. I didn't get arrested. Uh, I should have been, but I wasn't. And uh, I opened my front door, and, and there was my, at the time, 16-year-old son standing in front of me. And I had been preaching to that boy for years as he was getting his driver's license about drinking and driving and responsibility. And, and here I was living the hypocrite's life, doing what I told my child, you never do. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, did you drive home drunk? And I was going to lie to him. It would have been easy. Mm. But it was like him asking me that. It was almost like an instant sobering moment where I did, buddy. And, and the look of disappointment in his face, like I had just crushed my kid's spirit. My other son had been getting in trouble that day, and my wife had been trying to get a hold of me all day, but I was too busy drinking. And so when I got home, a huge blowout ensued between my wife and me over my drinking, and she threw mm. me out. She said, get out. I never want to see you again. Mm. And that's what it took, Diane. I, I, here I was. I, I, you know, I'm, my business is just starting to come together. But yet, I'm hurting all these people in my life, and now I've hurt the people that I'm closest to. And the next morning at 6 a.m., I picked up the phone, and I, I called a friend of mine, a client of mine, who was sober for 14 years, and I asked him how he did it. And, and he helped me, and he coached me. And that was the day that alcohol was removed from my life. And I'm grateful to say that it's been a little over five years now, and my desire to drink, the obsession I had to drink is all gone and my life has completely changed in a whole different direction. It really, it's been an amazing journey since that kind of bottom in 2017. Um, you know, on, on top of the drinking, because of the drinking, you know, I wasn't paying my bills. My home that I had lived in, there was all sorts of deferred maintenance. My house was starting to fall apart. I mean, I was just, I was letting everything go again. And my life was collapsing around me. And I saw the direction. The direction was... I was losing everybody. My business partner was probably on the cusp of saying, get out, we're done. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I wasn't working many hours at that point. And my entire financial life was crumbling around me again. It was, it was an awful moment, an awful moment in my life. That was, that, mm -hmm. that second bottom uh, was even more painful than what I experienced in 2005. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, that you got sober, and uh, congratulations on on uh, you know five years of sobriety. How do you think your experiences have shaped who you are today, and and what you're doing now with financial sobriety? Yeah, that's wonderful. I, you know, what 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 getting booze out of my life did was it helped me start to heal that relationship with self again. Mm -hmm. Only this time in a much more deeper, kind of more spiritual, meaningful way. It, it, it allowed me to finally start to see what, what I was here for, right? I mean, there, there were so many experiences in my life that should have killed me and didn't. And, and something kind of struck me that if, if I'm not dead yet and there's a reason for me to be here, what, what is that reason? I mean, there, there's a wonderful, wonderful man by the name of Simon Sinek who's done lots of great talks on this concept of what's your why? You know, he's all over the internet and, and he's done a great TED talk, one of my favorite TED talks he's done. And, yeah. and I've heard it said that the, you know, the, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. And hmm. getting sober, getting financially sober, getting sober in my relationship with money 
my relationship with people, my relationship with self. It, it helped me figure out what that second why was all about. And for me, it was very simple. It was about being helpful. It's about being part of something much bigger than myself, being part of a community where I can take my skills and my talents and I can give them away and be helpful to other people. And you know what? Some days I'll get paid for doing that and other days I won't. But the amount of fulfillment that I feel by just getting out of my own head and getting into somebody else's heart and being helpful to them has been a complete game changer for me. I had to get the booze out of my life, all mind-numbing substances out of my life. I had to once again reframe my relationship with money and get very clear on the people, places, and experiences that truly meant the most to me and, and, and kind of use that process as a way to realign my finances with those people, places, and experiences that truly mm. meant the most. Mm. And that process, it, it just almost from a healing process, I, I remember it was, uh, I was still drinking at the time, but back in 2015, I used to ask Jim for things to do. Just, I wasn't mm -hmm. as busy as he was yet. And he would always encourage me to just go write. Just write about your experience as a wholesaler. Let me forward you an article that you could write about. And I just, I found myself writing lots and lots, and it was incredibly therapeutic. Well, mm -hmm. once I got sober, my writing went into overdrive. And there was a time where Jim wanted me to tell some of my most difficult personal stories on some of these marketing videos that we were shooting at the time. And, and I remember how uncomfortable I was, but yet there was something really therapeutic about talking about what happened and telling the truth and writing about these things. And that's really what the genesis of financial sobriety was all about. You know, I, I had this overwhelming desire to help a lot of people, a lot mm. more people than a financial advisor has the capacity to in a one-on-one -on -one basis. And at the same time, by writing about my story, it's like I'm only as sick as my secret. So if I write about the stuff that I carry a lot of shame over, it, it's almost like a release of that shame by just telling other people about it and writing about it and accepting it as just part of being a flawed human being, these mistakes that I made. So mm. financial sobriety and writing the book was part about helping me heal and it was also about allowing me to have a much greater impact beyond what I could do in a private wealth management practice by telling people my story and talking about this relationship with money and how we could all potentially have a much healthier relationship with money through a lot of the experiences that I've had. And that's really where it started, was just this desire to be helpful. And since then, we've, we've taken that book and we've turned it into an incredible podcast where I feel like every time Jim and I get in the studio, it's a therapy session. It just, it, mm. I could be having a really rough day, but I get in studio and we talk it out and it feels like it's just the two of us sitting there having a conversation, yet we've now got this audience of over 15,000 listeners and it still feels like this intimate one-on-one -on -one conversation that just every time I walk out of the studio, I feel better than when I went in, partly because it's me helping myself, but it's also knowing that I'm just trying to be helpful to others. So the, mm -hmm. the journey's been fabulous, Diana. It's, it's been nothing I could have ever imagined if I look back on myself in 1995 when I first got in this business and my desire to be rich. There's no way I would have connected the dots to where I am today. It's, yeah, it's well, amazing. 
I just think you have a, an incredible story and uh, just really admire what you're doing. Um, well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time, but uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Matthew Grishman, for being on the podcast and, and opening up here about his experiences. Matthew, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Diana. It was wonderful to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity to share. I, I just wanted to share, I, I heard a, a really great quote this morning right before coming on the show with you that was just incredible timeliness for, for our time together. It was a quote by Augustine Burroughs. Mm -hmm. I like flaws and feel more comfortable around people who have them. I myself mm -hmm. am made entirely of flaws stitched together with good intentions. If you'd like to reach out to Matthew, uh, you can reach him at Matthew at yourfinancialsobriety.com. You can also listen to his podcast, Financial Sobriety, on every major podcast platform. And you can find out more about uh, Financial Sobriety on www.yourfinancialsobriety.com. If you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation. United Planners, an RIA and broker-dealer structured as a limited partnership, providing partners and associates an unfettered program to conduct fee-based and commission business for over 30 years. Advisors are offered the flexibility of being independent with a broad choice of custodians under the firm RIA or their own independent RIA.